Well, it's really a joy to be back uh, here with CCC and back in Beijing again. It's uh, nice to be in a place where I can taste and, and see the air that I'm breathing again. <laughs> so never trust air you can't see, right? Um, thank you, Doug, for leading us so well in worship and the worship team. And great to see Jenny again in the front row. I just want to say last week I was speaking at our church in Hong Kong. And as part of my illustration, Jenny figured quite prominently in, as uh, one of my illustrations, a trio of three heroic women who have gone into difficult places, uh, really strongholds of the enemy and really done great kingdom work. The other two are Amy Carmichael and Jackie Pullinger. So it's uh, just uh, Jenny is a, a, her- a hero in my eyes. Um, this morning I'm going to be speaking from Matthew chapter 22 of the parable of the wedding. And I do not have a slide um, for the entire scripture, uh, we'll have it verse by verse later on, so I apologize for that. So maybe just hear it as I read it to you through. Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This year I conducted three outdoor, or last year I conducted three outdoor weddings. The first was in the backyard of my sister's uh, property in Washington State. The second was on the eastern shores of the Pacific Ocean by a place called Kitts Beach in Vancouver. And then the third was on the western shore of the Pacific in a beautiful resort in the Philippines. And each of those three weddings was extremely beautiful. Each was very different. At my nephew's wedding, the one in my sister's backyard, there was no dress code. We are a very grassroots family, a very, very large family. Uh, Guests actually sat on bales of hay that had been arranged in rows. Uh, We ate hot dogs and baked beans after the wedding. That's how we celebrated At the resort in the Philippines, we all dressed in our finest clothes, and I think a number of people actually bought clothes specifically for the occasion. And then after that, we sat down to a a meal in a five-star hotel. (laughs) Very, very different weddings, but both were celebrating. So across cultures, all cultures around the world, the husband and the wife relationship is the only relationship that we deem significant enough to create a major ritual to go through to bring them together as husband and wife, and then usually to have a big meal together to celebrate what has just happened. In the Jewish world, 
There was an expectation for what they called the Messianic Wedding Banquet. It was a time when God's people would enjoy the banquet together with the Messiah. A wedding is both a culmination of something, a culmination of a courtship, and it's something that we look back to as this thing that really, uh, where our, our courtship was consummated. But in the Jewish mind, this final banquet that they looked forward to, the wedding banquet with their Messiah, was sort of an us and them sort of affair. So they knew that they knew that they knew that they were on the guest list. And they knew who was not on the guest list. All those who were the enemies of God, and in their minds, the non-Jews. Our son was married a couple of years ago. And he decided to have a very small wedding. Now, in my family, I'm the youngest of 12 kids, 48 grandkids, over 100 great-grandkids now. Plus, I'm serving in churches where everybody expects that they should be invited to my son's wedding. So he, he decided to have 150 people total for both sides of the family, him and Penny both. And so he gave us just a few seats of people that we could invite to the wedding. Very, very stressful for us. We had to decide who was in and who was out of my son's wedding. And actually, people would be calling me ahead of time. Hey, can I get an invitation to your son's wedding? And I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't have any more left. I should have started scalping the tickets on the street or something. <laughs> so with the expectation of this messianic feast, the Jews knew that they were on the guest list. They were the A-listers and the Gentiles were not. So now here is Jesus, this Jewish teacher, giving this story at the temple and telling them a little bit about the upcoming banquet. The parable is going to address their expectations. Now I have a slide here. I'm going to go into seminar mode here just for a moment. Of the four gospel writers, Matthew structures his material the most clearly. In the, in the, last, two, in the last week of Jesus' life, he gives two sets of three parables. This is actually the, the third of the first set of parables. So he's at the temple, and the three parables are about two sons, the vineyard and the wedding. And then later, just before he goes to the cross, on, when he's with the, the disciples on the Mount of Olives, he gives another three parables, ten virgins, three talents, and the sheep and goats. And all of these parables are meant to tell them what the kingdom is really like, that they're, they're looking forward to. Now, in the first three parables, Jesus uses images that evoke great national sentiment. So if you go to the next slide, there's stories of election and presumption. So the first parable is about two sons. That's how Israel's story began. It began with two sons, Jacob and Esau. One he loved and the other was rejected. There's a word of judgment on that parable on the son who presumed he was in because he was the son who was faithful. All talk and no action. The second parable is the parable of the vineyard. And that's as Israel's story progressed and they were planted in the land of Canaan. They were called by Isaiah and, Hose, Isaiah and Hosea as the vineyard that God had planted in this place. So this is kind of the middle part of their story, the main part of their story. And the judgment is that God is going to take away the vineyard because they didn't give him what belongs to him. And this third parable at the, um, at the temple is about the wedding feast. And this is the eschatological vision. It's the end times. So the judgment there is that they have not accepted the invitation. God's revealed in a different way in each parable. And when he's the father, then the master, then the king. But all parables are taking Israel through their story from beginning, middle, to end. And dealing with their expectations. 
Now, often the parables give away their main point, and uh, so next slide, main point in one line, as the last line of this parable, many are called and few are chosen. But it's a multi-dimensional parable, so we have to look at how the characters are acting and how they and and, and how they're uh, and, and they're invoking certain responses. So let's go through the parable just a few verses at a time and see what we can learn. Verses one and two. The kingdom of heaven is compared. Jesus used this line repeatedly in Matthew's gospel. He wants his listeners to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, that which they thought they knew so well but didn't really understand, and the fact. That they couldn't get over their assumptions. Jesus has to keep hammering the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like, it's like, it's like. They could not get over their assumptions of what they thought the kingdom was like. They had heard so much about. He has to keep explaining it to them. We, God's people today, need to be careful about our assumptions about the kingdom. About who is in and who is out. Because as we see from this story, it's those who are most smug in their theology who think they really have their theology down, are the farthest away from participating in the wedding. It's like a wedding feast that a king gave for his son. So in in Jesus' day, there's a lot of talk about this eschatological wedding feast. And for them, it's like a fulfillment of Psalm 23, where God prepares a table for his king in the presence of all of his enemies. And those on the Messiah side, they pictured it in this way. They are sitting down with the Messiah... In the kingdom of God, and all the enemies are on the outside, watching them, participating at this king. God prepares a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. So it's their minds, it's not only a time to celebrate, but it's a time to prove their A-list status that they really are in. Verses 3 to 7. So the wedding feast is prepared, and he sends invitations to go out. He sends a batch of servants out to invite the guests. He gets no response. Reminds me of some Sunday school classes I've taught in the past. and do all that work and nobody shows up except my wife who just needs to wait for me to go to lunch anyway. The, the ESV reads it like this, the, uh, the version I used, to call those who were invited. And in Greek, the words call and invited are the same word. It's the key word of this parable, the called ones. It's used six times. It's a story about getting an invitation to a royal wedding. So he sends out a batch of servants in verse 4. Now it's interesting, he prepares everything for the wedding, and then he sends out the invitations. Now we would never do such a thing, right? We need to know how many are coming to the wedding, so so we can know how much food to prepare. But the king is so certain that his feast is going to be full that he prepares everything and then he sends out the invitations. After all, who would not want to attend a royal wedding? Now, I'm not a big royal watcher. Um, I had little interest in that thing with, who are they, Kate and Pippa and all those people that got married a couple years ago. Um, I always get the boys mixed up and their spouses. But there were hundreds of millions of people glued to their TVs watching that wedding. And here in Beijing, even people, my wife knew people who actually dressed up in kind of royal wedding garb to go and watch it on TV. Uh, Those are Joy's friends, not mine, that did that. (laughs) But can you imagine how many people would have showed up had Charles sent invitations out so broadly? Not so these guests who were invited to this royal banquet. They respond to the the second batch of servants in two ways. The first group is disinterested. They can't be bothered going to a stupid wedding. 
They're busy getting on with life. They have no interest in taking time out to do this thing. So what they do is they show where their affections lie. How they truly feel about the king and his kingdom. No, I've got other things to do. The second group are hostile. They actually oppose the servants who've come to invite them to the wedding. So the first group is like people who went to their mailbox and they took out the invitation and they quickly junk, they threw it in the junk mail folder. Or the junk mail, the garbage can. The second group actually killed the mailman for delivering this invitation. And by the king's response, what we see here in the final verse here is that he's actually talking about the people of Israel. The king comes and burns the city. There to understand that this refers to Jerusalem. Next part, verses 8 to 10. But the king must have a feast for his son. So he dispatches yet more servants to, to do what? He says to invite as many as you can find. There's no limitations on this feast. The king demands that his house be full. The irony is that for the first listeners, the enemies, the Gentiles, are actually going to be the ones who are at the wedding rather than the A-listers. So the servants go out and they bring in, it says, all that they found. Now here's the detail in the story that you have to hear. Both the good and the bad. In Greek, it reads both the poneros and the agathos. The evil and the good. The first people who did not come to the wedding feast were described as unworthy. But what exactly does it mean for an unworthy person to be rejected or to not come to the wedding feast? The word evil, poneros, actually means this. Evil in a moral or spiritual sense. Wicked, malicious, mischievous. So apparently this wedding feast is not a celebration of the moral majority. If I was given with my few invitations to invite people to my son's wedding, I would not have gone purposely looking for evil people. What are evil people doing at the, king, at the wedding feast for the king's son? We have to let that question linger in our hearts for a moment. See, as Christians, if we've been at this for a long time, and I've been a professional Christian, I get paid to be a, a Christian actually, I do church work. We take so many pains to be upstanding moral people, and I teach people to be moral people. Because we've learned that sin hurts us. Drugs and uh, alcohol abuse, illicit sex, bribery, corruption. These things are har- things that harm our lives and our families. And so we've surrounded ourselves in this thing called the church with people who share that similar moral code that we have. Much like the people that Jesus was talking to. But the king apparently has someone else, other people in mind. He has a different moral code for the people that he invites to his wedding feast. What does that mean for us? Let's go on. Verses 11 to 14. Well, now we come to the only person in the story who's actually not welcome at the wedding feast. And it strikes us, I think, as amazingly Cruel, strangely cruel. Maybe we picture this man who didn't have the proper attire to come to the wedding as the guy who just couldn't afford the right clothes. At my nephew's wedding this last summer, um, the one where we sat on bales of hay and we ate baked beans and hot dogs after, a number of guests showed up in t-shirts and shorts 
And I don't think anybody at that wedding went out and bought new clothes to come to that wedding. But at the one in the Philippines, at the five-star resort on the side of the ocean, we were actually told on the invitation what kind of clothes we should wear. And for me, it's no big deal because I honestly, I don't really care. If you know me well enough, you know that I don't really care what I look like. I have fashion blinders. And not only that, I don't even, can't even really tell if someone's dressed really nice or, or not. But for my wife, unfortunately, this was a major place of stress for her. And she spent months worrying about, even after she bought the outfit, did I buy the right thing? Did I fit the category that was given to us on the invitation? And even until she actually walked out into the wedding, that day, into, the, into the yard where the wedding was, she doubted herself. I often quote to my wife Jesus' words in Matthew 6, Why do you worry about clothes? <laughs> but... The guest at the wedding of the king's son is kicked out most harshly, we notice that, most harshly, because he failed to wear the correct clothes. Now, it was the king's responsibility to provide festal garments for the guests. So the invitation to his son's wedding would have come with a set of clothes. So if you're planning a five-star wedding, keep that in mind. It would make it much simpler for your guests if you would do that. This man, for some reason, decided to try to attend the wedding without the clothes that the king had provided for him. So when the king spotted him there, immediately spotted him, he knew that this guy shouldn't be here because he's not doing what I've asked him to do. He didn't provide the clothes I provided for him. Now, we don't know if this guy was one of the evil guests or one of the good guests, but that's beside the point. Everybody else in the feast, the evil ones and the good ones... The mafioso people and Mother Teresa, they all were wearing the clothes that the king provided. The only question in the king's mind as he comes into the wedding feast is, is this guest wearing the clothes that I provided for him? And then the final verse, the moral of the story, many are called but few are chosen. The king sends out his invitation broadly, but he's not a universalist. He ultimately decides who is worthy to be part of his wedding banquet based on his own judgment. There's really two ways we apply this parable, I believe. One with the, think about the invitation, firstly. And then secondly, the close. The invitation. What's the first thing you do when you receive an invitation to a wedding? Sometimes we groan. But then you check the date to see if you can attend. If you've said yes to the invitation, the hosts are expecting you. And they're going to go to some expense to have you there. And weddings can be a great cause of stress. I've, I've conducted many weddings. I know that these are extremely stressful events. One time I... I was conducting a wedding and the, I, I heard, actually heard the bride's mother say to somebody, this is just a disaster waiting to happen just before it was going to start. I, I hope she was talking about the wedding and not the marriage. <laughs> but we have so many questions. What's appropriate for the red packet? What should we wear? And somehow we managed to make weddings about us, the guests. <laughs> and the wedding is all about the groom, in this case, the Messiah. This end-of-days eschatological banquet symbolizes communion with God. 
It's a communion with God that will be perfect and complete when we will no longer see through a glass dimly for, because we'll see him for who he is. And those of us gathered around, there, around the table will be free from the, the uh, dissension and jealousies and added envies and prides that have plagued us, robbed us of fulfilling relationships with each other. It'll be complete perfection, relationship with one another, and particularly with the God that we're celebrating. But it really symbolizes communion with God, which we enjoy now. The negative responses that we see to the invitation are things we have to consider about ourselves and examine our own, uh, our own responses to God's invitation to us. To fellowship with him on a daily basis. Disinterest, hostility, and presumption. Some actually are quite disinterested, I think, in communing with God. It's like the guests who wanted to plow their fields or attend to their businesses. We all have planes to catch and bills to pay, right? In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis made the point that those who have no interest in heaven on earth... That is in relationship with God now, communing with him now, will be very little interested in eternal fellowship with him. Today, God calls us away from the maddening crowd to learn to enjoy him, to have our hearts filled with the good things from his table. Have you learned to commune with God? Are you really that interested? Honestly, some days I wake up and I'm really not that interested. I might wake up with a headache. I have a bunch of other things on my to-do list. But I made Psalm 84 my daily prayer when I start the day to kind of make my heart go to that place. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. And even days when I don't feel that way, I try to adjust my, 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 my heart and my mind, the state of my being to true reality that God is there waiting to commune with me. Are we interested? Some people honestly are hostile towards God. They might feel God's given them a raw deal in life. He's made some impossible demands upon them. Jesus gave an earlier invitation halfway through his ministry where he said, I want you to follow me, but if you choose to do so, you've got to take up a cross and follow. It means I'm following you to the way of death. You have to pay the ultimate price to follow me. And that message of the cross is a message of great hostility. And for those of us that don't want to die in certain parts of our lives, it's very hard for us to truly hear that word and to follow. So some guests are hostile towards God because they think God is asking of them more than they can handle. Two weeks ago, I was at a memorial service for a woman who passed away of cancer, 60 years old. She's the older sister of... A very good friend, Rebecca, Rihanna and Rebecca, are probably our closest friends. Two years earlier, Yan and Rebecca had moved to New York to nurse their daughter, Ashley, through a two-year bout with cancer, at, at the end of which she passed away. And so they lived with Ashley for two years. She died at 26. Along the way, Rebecca lost a couple of other siblings to cancer, and then they came back to Hong Kong just in time to be with her sister, Mary, well, to have some time with her sister Mary and to walk through her final days, Rebecca's closest friend. And I've I've watched them walk through this great pain of losses, what what, what is being taken away from them in life. 
And I've watched them come closer together as husband and wife and, and be drawn much closer into communion with God. Even though they lament and they address him with anger sometimes, but they ultimately believe that the God who called them is good, is to be relied upon, and they've grown closer to him. Is there something in life that makes us hostile towards God? Has he given us a short, uh, the short end of the stick? This parable asked me to look at my hostility towards him. Third, another possible response, and this is the worst of all responses to the invitation, is presumptuousness. That man in the feast came without the clothes the king had provided. We don't know what his reasons were for neglecting that which the king provided to come to the feast, that which would make him adequately worthy to be there. We don't know why. But what I do know is that, or what I do understand through this, is that I must be careful of any theology that makes me more important than God. A theology that, that forces God to act in the way that I think he should act. We come to God always as imperfect people, but we dare not presume upon his grace as if he owes us something. It's purely grace. And that leads us to the close, the close of the sermon, but also the part of the parable, C-L-O-T-H-E-S. I didn't put up the, the final verse. Um, do you guys have a Bible there, John or Mark? You guys still read it, don't you? If you could just find quickly for me Revelation 7. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So we can't overlook the fact that the clothes are everything. The clothes really are everything for the wedding. There's no other reason, ultimately, that someone is rejected or accepted into the messianic banquet other than the clothes. And so we go to this final vision also an eschatological vision of us gathered around the throne. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We, as the people of the Lamb have only this boast as we look forward to the wedding banquet. As I stand here today, I have no idea which ones of us are evil and good. We all want to be good, but our God is not Santa Claus. He's not looking at who's naughty or nice in order to invite the right ones to his banquet. He's only looking at the clothes he's provided for you. And are you wearing those? I never met my grandfather. He died in 1945. He was a German-blooded Ukrainian um, immigrant to Canada. And, uh, but they say he, and he was a pastor, a preacher, and uh, they say he was just a wonderful man. 
His eyes shone with the joy of Christ. He had such a deep wealth of love for people. My mom points to him as the, mo- the person who had the greatest spiritual impact on her life, my faithful mom who had 12 kids and deeply impacted all of us. So his impact now has gone into uh, many to three or four generations already. Great man from what I know, but I didn't really know him. I only know the stories about him. When he was on his deathbed, my mom said that he was having this great time of torment and it was the enemy was, 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 was trying to place doubts in his mind that he was not worthy to meet Jesus. And she said he was sweating and turning and wrestling so deeply on his deathbed. And these are the words of the hymn that he kept saying over and over again. This hymn was written by Count um, Zinzendorf, one of the father of modern missions. Over and over he said the close... He said, the close, that's the title. He said, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Those are the words that he went out of life on. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. I have no idea what the enemy was saying to him in those final few moments of his life. I have no idea what he would be using in my grandfather's life because I only know this heroic person of the stories. So I have no idea what those things were that made him feel unworthy of being at that messianic banquet. But when he finished, it didn't ultimately matter because what mattered to him was the dress that he was wearing. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. The king has a very full feast planned, and he's not yet finished sending out the invitations. We're invitation bearers, and we're invitation recipients. As we bear the invitation, we go in his spirit with the dress that he's provided, encouraging people to put it on and get ready for the wedding. And we ourselves, as we live this life, refuse to be smug in our morality or our theology and come with brokenness of spirit daily to our king who's given us the clothes to wear because it's only him, Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for providing for us. Thank you that thank you. there is uh, nothing we've done or no, nothing that we are that cannot be covered by the dress you've provided. Thank you for giving us ears to hear. And as you would ever see hardness developing in the hearts of your kids, sometimes we might think other people are unredeemable. Help us to remember ourselves. And when the enemy would tempt us and make us feel like we're unworthy, help us to remember you. It's your blood and your righteousness. Our our beauty, our glorious dress. Amen.